Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that every woman, or I'm sorry, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of God. We're going to be in that passage, and the disclaimer that he was um, doing, that I will now do, is um, that this message is um, it's explicit. Um, it's explicit, not more explicit than the Bible, but the Bible's pretty explicit, so that's why it's explicit, and so um, I don't think we have any kids in here that need to leave or anything like that, but, um, but that's what it's about. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the part here where Jesus shows how the religious leaders of that day um, toned down God's commands, and we saw last week with uh, the commandment of murder that they toned down the commandment of murder, and they just looked at physically. If you haven't killed somebody, you're good, right? But we saw last week that there's a kind of murder that happens in the heart and with our words. And Jesus wants to show us the same kind of thing happens with adultery. There is a type of adultery that's in the heart, and it has the same um, eternal consequences. So let's pray before we start. Father, As we come before your word, Lord, we are completely dependent on you to understand it, to apply it, to be open to it even, Lord. We won't be open to it unless you open our hearts to it, and so we pray that you would open our hearts to it. Lord, I I pray as we enter into something that's a a very convicting uh, truth here that you have given us, we pray, Lord, for for grace in that, Lord. There's no one here that has uh, a pure heart completely or pure eyes or pure hands, Lord. We have all sinned, and so, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that we would come um, fully feeling the forgiveness we have in Christ as we open this word, and that we would rejoice in that, and that we would deal with everything your word has to say on this area of lust. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we do this message, you know, I'm not good at doing euphemisms. You guys have probably heard passages like this taught with words like impurity used over and over again or intimacy used over and over again. I'd rather just use the the straight biblical words on this. Um, If you look at verse 27, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is not here contradicting the Old Testament. It sounds like that kind of because he's, he's quoting the Old Testament. What he's contradicting here is the way that the scribes and the Pharisees would soften God's commands. And we looked at the last couple weeks that the reason they did that is because they were relying on their own law keeping to feel right with God. And if you're going to try to pursue God that way, it's impossible. And so you end up kind of minimizing commands, saying, well, this doesn't apply to me, or this doesn't apply that much, or in this area, you know, I've got a good excuse for it. And that's what the religious leaders were doing. And so they looked at this command against adultery and said, well, you know, if I've never physically cheated on my spouse, I'm good. And they would actually use that as a way to look down on people um, that, that had. But Jesus is showing us here, guys, that adultery is something that can be committed in the heart, and it has the same eternal consequences. Um, it happens when, he says here, that we look upon a person with lustful intent. It's a, it's a directing of the eyes to fuel the imagination and to stir up lust in the heart. 
And I realize, guys, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might read a passage like this and think it sounds really extreme. You know, that, that even what you do in your mind is something that you could be responsible to God for. And then you hear the word hell, and you hear gouge out your eye and chop off your hand, and you could think, this seems like Jesus is being awfully extreme. And if that's you, I want you guys to just don't tune me out. Wait and hear what, what, what the reason for what God has here, because I think the answer will surprise you. And so what's so wrong with lust? First, before we do that, I think what we need to do is we need to establish the fact that God is very much pro-sex, Okay. God is not opposed to sex. He's not opposed to sexual desire. He's for it. It was his idea. He invented it. He designed it. I think that requires some pondering. Um, if your view of God is that there's no way that he could be a being that would have invented bodies for sex and hormones for sex and brain chemistry and the actions of sex, then your view of God is off because he did design all these things. And, um, and it was his idea from the beginning. It was a part of his good creation. If you look in Genesis 2... 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And it's not as if God created, you know, naked man, naked woman, he leaves for a little bit to get a coffee break, he comes back and he goes, What are you guys doing? I left you alone for an hour and this? You know, as if he's like, Well, okay, we can work with that. Maybe that's how we'll, you know, procreate or it's like, that wasn't it. He designed it from the beginning. And guys, this is a book that opens with a naked man singing with joy over his naked wife. Okay? This is not the book of a sexually repressed God. Okay? I think that's really important for you to see from the beginning. And the Bible speaks positively of sex throughout. I mean, Song of Solomon um, it speaks very explicitly about sex. Um, some of our forebearers, the Puritans and others, um, interpreted Song of Solomon as just being the relationship between the church and Christ because they couldn't deal with the, the details of this. But listen to this one. Song of Solomon 7.7. 7. This is a husband talking to his wife, and he says this. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Okay? Like, this is a God that's not um, repressive about sex. Now, throughout church history, guys, there have been groups that have been very repressive about sex. Um, you can think there is a kind of a deep religious distrust of sexual pleasure. And you see that throughout church history. I mean, you see, especially with like the Shakers. The Shakers were people that, that uh, started in the 18th century, and they believed that sex, all sex was wrong, even sex for procreation. And you can imagine that that group, you know, was self-limiting, right? Because nobody wants to join that. And you aren't having kids to kind of keep that thing going, so it died out. It didn't last very long at all. Um, other traditions have taught that sex and marriage is only right when there's a reasonable likelihood of conception, which does horrible damage to marriages. Um, in the Proverbs, if you look in Proverbs 5, it's a section warning against adultery, but it has this in it. Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a, as a lovely deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Okay, so the Proverbs talk about not just don't be intoxicated with the breasts of an adulteress, but be intoxicated with your wives. Okay, so that's a text for you married people. You could, you know, apply that later, right? This is a book, guys, that's very pro-sex. And so when Jesus talks about how lust is wrong, he's not saying that lust is wrong because sex is wrong. He's saying that lust is wrong because lust treats sex as a consumer good. 
Okay? I really want you to get this concept. Lust treats sex as a consumer good when it's really a covenant good. Tim Keller says that sex is not a consumer good, it's a covenant good. Sex was designed to strengthen the covenant of marriage. And you guys might say, well, like, what's a covenant? Because that's not a word we use very much. A covenant is a legal commitment that establishes a relationship. You might say, well, that sounds, that makes marriage sound just legal. Well, marriage is a covenant. It is both legal and loving. It's actually loving because it's legal. Okay? The fact that this covenant is a promise of permanence makes it loving. And a covenant relationship is the exact opposite of a consumer relationship, right? A consumer relationship says this, I'm all in as long as you meet my needs. Okay? That's a consumer relationship, right? That's the relationship that you have with vendors that you buy things from, right? I'm all in as long as you meet my needs. And for those of us who have customers like I do in my business, um, you have some customers that are loyal customers, right? They're very loyal. But the fact of the matter is, is that even a loyal customer eventually is out if you don't provide them services, right? So that's a consumer relationship. A covenant relationship is the exact opposite. A covenant relationship says, I'm all in even when you don't meet my needs at all and even if it costs me everything. Okay, those of you guys who have businesses, are any of your customers willing to say that? I'm all in, even if you don't meet any of my needs, and even if it costs me everything. Nobody says that, right? That's a covenantal relationship. And I want you guys to just check yourselves. You guys that are married people, check yourself. What kind of mindset do you have towards your spouse? Is your mindset, I'm all in, as long as you meet my needs? Are you just kind of like just a really loyal customer, but you have a consumeristic relationship with your spouse? Or are you saying, I'm all in even when it doesn't meet my needs at all and even when it costs me everything? Now, there are biblical grounds for divorce, and we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks because Jesus is going to come to that. I'm talking about garden variety, things that you deal with in marriage. Are you all in even if it, they don't meet your needs and even if it costs you everything? In the marriage covenant, we say this. We say, I belong to you permanently, exclusively, and completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen all your flaws. I've seen that you're crazy, and I'm all in, even if it costs me everything. I'm not going anywhere. The marriage covenant makes us completely vulnerable to our spouse. You think about the vulnerability of getting married. It makes you vulnerable legally, financially, right? It makes you um, vulnerable personally, emotionally, and socially. It leaves you completely exposed to the other person. And so God designed a physical act that displays that kind of exposure, that kind of unity, and it's called sex. Sex is doing with our bodies what we have already promised to do with the rest of our lives, to be in complete, unguarded unity with our whole lives. And when sex is used that way, it adds joy and security and intimacy to marriage. Adultery violates that covenant. And adultery is very common. We're going to talk about it in a couple weeks when we talk about divorce. I'm fun, huh? Right? Okay. Um, in, a, in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about that when we talk about divorce. Adultery is really common. Um, but sex outside of marriage in any way, guys, turns what's a covenant good, something that's good for the covenant, into a consumer good. Sex outside of marriage says, I'm too afraid, or I want my freedom too much, or I care too little about you to make the kind of lifelong commitment with you, but I want you to share yourself with me just as if I was willing. That's what it says. It's a, it's a consumer relationship. It says, I'll take the goods and leave my options open. It says, you know, there might be a better vendor out there. 
right? I want to leave my options open. And so it's a consumeristic approach. And some people think that kind of living together and stuff will help them and keep them from experiencing divorce later. And it kind of makes sense. You know, you try it out, make sure it's good. And then it turns out, though, guys, study after study has shown that living together actually makes divorce way more likely. And you know why that is? It's because living together doesn't train people to be covenant keepers, does it? It trains them to be consumers. And none of us need training in that. You know, we're all naturally consumeristic when it comes to these things. And so God's designed sex as a physical illustration of this marriage covenant promise. It's two people who become physically one because they've been become permanently one in every area, their area of their lives. And this enriches and strengthens the covenant. And when we use sex outside of marriage, we're taking something covenantal, we're making it consumeristic. And what Jesus talks about here when he talks about lust, lust is entirely consumeristic, right? Lust is entirely consumeristic. And the crazy thing is, I was thinking about this this week, in our culture, in our consumeristic technological culture, we have actually developed a way to market and distribute and charge for lust. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. I mean, we think about pornography. You think about we've actually, in our culture, developed a way to make money off of every hit. It's crazy when you think about it. And you think about how available it is. I mean, think about in Jesus' original context, what was it like in first century Jerusalem for some dude to be tempted to lust or some woman to be tempted to lust? I mean, we think about what they're wearing and stuff. I don't even see how this works, right? I mean, our culture is so much more lust-prone, especially when you add in pornography on your phone and stuff. This is something that's always accessible. It's anonymous. You don't have to go to some store and talk to some dude and be like, oh, I want the thing over there, you know? None of that, right? No risk of that. And it's inexhaustible. You can never run out of porn. Porn's being created all the time. And I was just thinking, like, we need a message directly on that. I want to focus on that this morning because this is a huge cultural issue for us. Now, it may not be an issue for you. Praise God. That's great. I would love to enlist your help in helping others to, to, to be free from this. But it is a major discipleship issue in our culture. Uh, many believers want to be free from it. I, th- I know that as I talk about this and the problems of porn and stuff, you already get it. You want to be free from it if you're stuck in it. And even a lot of non-Christians are starting to see that this is not a good thing. I want to be free from it. I think that presents us with a gospel opportunity if we're the kind of culture that can help people get out of these things. And so, um, guys, pornography is extremely common, as you know. It's common amongst men and women. A third of porn is used by women. I think, you know, as I talk, it's going to sound like a very male-oriented thing that I'm saying, because that's most of my experiences are talking with guys about it. But a third of porn is consumed by women. Women often are tempted with erotic literature, too. And because we have the ability to read things on our phones now or on a Kindle, it makes that really easy. Um, you know, you think about the, the immense amount of sales for things like the Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, somebody's buying that. A lot of Christians are buying that, too, I would assume. Porn, guys, generates $13 billion a year in the U.S. So if you take the U.S. population, babies all the way up to 100-year-old people, that would be 40 bucks each. This is a lot of money, right? $13 billion in the U.S. on porn. Pornhub, which is one of the most common sites, alone got 2.5 million visits per hour last year. It's crazy. You just think of the computer infrastructure that can even take in that kind of traffic. Um, a fifth of mobile searches are for porn. A fifth of the searches on phones, all phones, are for porn. Not all phones, not like your phone, but like all phones. A fifth of searches. I mean, these are also people looking for pizzas. 
You know what I mean? Or like, what are all the dumb things you search? Like, I don't know how to spell anymore. You know, most of mine's like, is it spelled this way? Is there a hyphen there? Right? A fifth of searches are for porn. Um, it's common among men and women. With men under 24, 67% regularly use porn. Okay? So two-thirds of men under 24. Above 25, it's 47%. It's almost half. I mean, and that's including, you know, I would assume, age 25 to 125. Right? So you think about the distribution there. For women, it's also common, though. 24 and younger, it's 33%. So it's a third of women under 24. For over 25, it's 13%. So lower, but still common. Guys, our community is messed up. I was talking to a guy the other day about, you know, you know those lights that are called lazy lights, I guess they call them? So, like, you could hang Christmas tree lights, or you can get this thing that just shoots them on your wall, which I wish I would have known about because I put all these hooks up, and it was terrifying, and, and I was only, like, a few feet off the ground. I'm really afraid of heights, but imagine, guys, if those lazy lights that are set up for Christmas started broadcasting what was on the screens of all the people in the homes, and you could see it in the garage doors. I mean, that's God's view of our community. That's God's view of some of our homes. Um, and it starts young, guys. Most of the men that I talked to about this, um, about their habits, um, started when they were 11 or 12. Okay? And imagine what it does to a kid's brain for their brain to be bathed in porn for a decade. A lot of the guys that I talked to me, they're 25 or something, they've been, their brain's been soaked in porn for 13 years. Um, and if you guys, parents, if you're not regulating the ex internet exposure of your kids, that will happen. I mean, that's, you have to regulate. We'll talk about it a little bit more later about how you do that. I was listening to this debate this week. Um, it's, uh, it's this podcast. It's super boring, okay? They, they, it's a policy podcast, and they debate things. It's British, and they have motions, and it's horribly boring. I love it, though. And so, anyway, there was one this time. is the most exciting thing they've ever done. It was uh, one on porn, and the motion was, is porn good for society? And they had experts in different fields debating this and stuff. But one of the guys that asked a question of it said this. He asked of one of the pro-porn people, because they have all these reasons of why it's a good thing. And he, said, he asked him this. He said, um, he said, right now in our culture, porn is the main way that young people are learning about sex. Do you see a problem with porn training our next generation on how to think about sex? Which I thought was a devastating question. The person that answered it go, well, you know, we aren't doing a good job with sex ed in our schools, and so this is, you know, this is one avenue for them. And I was just thinking about it as they're debating, I'm like, could you guys show a clip of exactly what you think would be really good for your future son-in-law to be learning about sex from? Like, what are we talking about here? Because it's nothing that even would be appropriate for that kind of a thing. And, and another problem with porn, too, is that it, for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, which is very common even in the church, porn is a way that adds fuel to the fire. But the crazy thing is, in our culture, only about half of adults think it's a problem. Right? And if they, they did a study on um, people that were 13 to 24, so young people, and they had them rank a list of taboos, and porn was lower as not as bad as overeating and not recycling. Okay? And so there's a real disconnect here, guys, of younger people on the, the problems of pornography. But guys, sex is extremely powerful. When it's used right, it's amazing what it does. It strengthens marriages. It makes homes more secure. When sex is used rightly, it makes homes more secure so children can flourish. But when it's used wrong, it does exactly the opposite. It tears homes apart. And so I want to just go through and give you a few things about the destruction of porn. I know you guys are already on board, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. First thing is, porn changes the way you think about people. Okay? Porn actually train, trains people's minds to think differently about people. It makes you think of people as objects to consume 
for your own needs instead of as human beings. It, it produces unrealistic expectations of women and men and sex. In one study they did, they, they measured the amount of pornography uh, that someone views regularly and then asked some questions about uh, a bunch of different life issues and they found that people that viewed porn, men that viewed porn more, more often, thought less about women as human beings and were way more tolerant to women being abused. And that's because a lot of porn actually has abuse in it. Porn creates a market, guys, for sexual exploitation. I think this is something you don't realize, especially if you're viewing, quote-unquote, free porn. About 9 out of 10 porn visits are free porn, which means they don't charge. But that makes advertising money, guys. That's the way that works. Clicks make advertising money. And when you treat sex as a consumer good, it creates a market, supply and demand. If there's a market for it, they will get more product. Porn is one of the products of a global industry of sexual exploitation. When you think about what Holly's dealing with in Cambodia with rescuing girls out of sex trafficking, that's a part of the same industry. You're just feeding off of one of the products of it. And, and as porn shapes the mind of whole new generation, it increases the demand for sex trafficking and all the other things that go along with it. Some people in pornography are trafficked people. Um, even those who are kind of freely in the industry suffer great misery. You know, we think about um, the sexual abuse. We think about the rampant drug use. Um, so even when you're viewing, quote, free porn, you're creating a market for an industry that destroys lives. And those people, I think we forget, are people's sons and daughters. They're their granddaughters and grandsons. And they're the same people that are being victimized in an industry that we're trying to fight in Cambodia. So we can't take part in it. Third, porn ruins marriages. Porn decreases sexual desire in marriage because porn's easier. Okay? Real sex takes time, takes effort, takes vulnerability. Um, pornography is way easier. Uh, men and women, they'll just take the path of least resistance and use pornography. Porn is a common complaint in divorce cases. Um, it increases the chances of physical infidelity. Um, next thing, porn is addicting and causes uh, physical changes in the brain. Is this book, it's, um, it's, a, it's a couple years old now, but it, I think it's really good. It's called Wired for Intimacy. Um, how pornography hijacks the brain. And in it, he talks about how uh, regular pornography use, because of the, the neural and chemical things that it's doing, creates kind of a, he used this example of, you know how you're, you're hiking on a trail, and they, they, sometimes they'll put a stake, like this isn't a trail, because they don't want people to keep walking on it and digging deeper and deeper a trail. Or you think about the, the Grand Canyon, and you think about a river just going over time, and it's carved this trough. Same thing happens in our brains when we repetitively use pornography. What happens is, is that a trough, a, a neurochemical pathway, develops in our brains to where it's easier and easier to just slide along that path. It becomes a, a, a path. It's, it's something that becomes addictive. It has a strong chemical. And he talks about here the different brain chemicals and stuff. Because we're talking about something that's actually God designed to bond or cement a husband and a wife together. And so there's incredibly powerful chemicals. You've got to have incredibly powerful chemicals to do that. Marriage isn't easy. Things are difficult. If this thing's going to help that much with marriage, it's got to be strong. It's got to be powerful. And it is. It becomes addictive. I was thinking our culture with pornography is kind of like a bunch of kids that found a box of dynamite and thought there were candles, right, and just started playing with them. I mean, that's, that's what we have when we have pornography. Um, porn creates a desire for more deviant forms of porn, and this is, seriously happens. Like a lot of addictions, there's a law of diminishing returns where you need something worse every time. Ecclesiastes 1.8 says that the, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. And that's why pornography, so much of it is violent. 
And that's why so much, why there's an increase in a market for child pornography, is that it le an addiction works that way. You need more and more to get the same response, and so it becomes more and more deviant. And guys, what's cool, and I mentioned it earlier, is our culture's starting to see this, which I think is really cool. I, there is a change. Young people, like that survey, that's very disturbing that it's not as bad as not recycling. <laughs> think about that when you hang out with younger people, like, and you just like toss that plastic in the trash can. They're like, that's worse than porn. You know, like, you might want to keep that in mind. Um, but our culture is discovering. There's been articles, like, even in, like, GQ magazine, which is not, like, the, you know, most moral source of information by far. Or, like, uh, Time magazine. They had something in there recently, and they were talking about how porn users, isn't in Time, are saying that the pleasure they wanted from porn is fleeting. Um, they've almost completely lost it, and it's become addicting. And I know, guys, when I talk about pornography, talk really convictingly about it, I know that that's not going to end somebody's, like, 15-year addiction to pornography. They're not going to like walk out of here most likely and go, all right, I'm done. But it's a start, guys, and it's a plea. And the crazy thing that I see, and I don't have tons of church experience of going to a bunch of different churches, but I see a silence about this that is astonishing. I mean, if like a third of the people in the room were like hooked on meth, we would do something about it, right? If a third of the people were, you know, embezzling money or something, We'd talk about it. But for some reason in this area, there's so little discussion of it. So it's a plea. And if you're struggling with this or you know somebody is, here's some steps that need to be taken. Okay? First step would be confession. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that cool? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Don't try to win this battle by yourself, okay? That will not be the, You know Satan, when he hunts us, he hunts by divide and conquer. Like, that's the whole point. You guys have seen a Planet Earth, a nature movie. They're going to actually make a second one, which is super cool, but I don't know if you guys remember the scene where it's this aerial shot of the caribou, and they're all running, and everybody's, you know, they're all happy and grazing. And then they start running, and you see wolves after them, right? All those nature shows, like, it gets in sad. Like, somebody's got to die. It's nature. But the wolves are chase, chasing these caribou, and you see them chasing them. They're going all around, and you think, oh, this is interesting. They seem to be fine. And then what happens? One takes off, right? And what do you think when you watch those shows and you see that one take off? Dead, right? That one's dead, okay? Wolves go after that one. They chase it down, and it can only last so long, and it's dead. It's the same way with sin, guys. You need the herd. You need the church. And I love, guys, how much confession happens in this church, it's super awesome. I was reading this book. Oh, this, by the way, guys, is one of the best books, I think. I've led it with a bunch of guys through the issue of pornography. It's actually about substance abuse, but if you skip chapter four and five, this book is like an incredible book on any kind of habitual sin. It's like one of the best books on dealing with habitual sin that I know of. But anyway, this book, Addictions, uh, Banquet in the Grave by Ed Welsh, he says in there, he says about confession... He says, most of the time people get caught. Sometimes they confess their sin without being caught. And Ed Welsh says this, let's just say that that's rare at best. And if it does happen, you're witnessing a dramatic work of God's spirit. And I remember reading that and I remember underlining going like, I see this all the time. It's so cool. It's so great. It's an evidence of grace. And so if, if um, your husband or your wife or your friends confess this sin to you, it's a huge evidence of grace and you should rejoice in it. Because it's, it's God at work. And when that happens, it just says that, guys, you as a church have created a culture of grace where people can confess sin without fear. It's a win, guys. 
I mean, you know, it's not a win that somebody's hooked in pornography, but it's a win that they would confess it. It's amazing that they would confess it. People don't do that unless the Spirit's at work. It also shows that we have created a culture here where we have made clear that true freedom from sin is available in Christ. Because people are going to confess if they know they're forgiven and that they can be set free. And when we confess our sin, guys, especially sin like this to somebody really close to us, a friend, your spouse, whatever, you know what you're doing? You're burning the bridge. You guys know what that phrase means? So like in old days, they go like, you know, to battle with another nation, and they cross a bridge to go into that other nation, the, the invading army, and behind them, they burn the bridge. Why? No deserting. We're going for this. We're not going back. That's what you're doing when you confess. You're burning the bridge. Once significant people in your life know about this, there's no going back. Um, and I know that for several men, and probably for wives too, but for several men, it was, it was the real turning point when they confessed this sin to their wives. And I know I bring that up, and this could create a whole bunch of drama for us, and we'll deal with it. But that can be a major turning point and an awesome thing. Secondly, got to cut off access. Okay? So confess. Second one would be cut off access. you got to treat this as an addiction, guys. No alcoholic that's, like, serious about sobriety keeps a fifth of vodka under a sofa. Right? You don't do that. You don't go, oh, my gosh, I fell into it again. It's like, how? Well, I grabbed the fifth of vodka I keep under my sofa. It's like, why do you do that? But for some reason, with this issue, we think that, the, you know, our devices and stuff like this are like civil rights, you know, and like there's no way I could exist without this thing, or there's no way that I could exist without the full functionality of this thing. Guys, somebody that wants to walk in freedom from pornography has to cut off access to it. There's no way around it. And cutting off access is accountability. And um, there's an app, I'm going to be real practical with you, but Covenant Eyes is the best one I know of. There's a few different ones. If you at all are technological and an app-developing kind of person, there is going to be a massive market in this area, if you can do better. But Covenant Eyes app is really good. It's a paid service. You go, oh, it costs money. It's like, yeah, that's worth it, okay? You put it on your computer, but you put it on your phone, too. And here's the way it works. I want to be real practical with you. Is um, you, you, you buy an account, pay monthly. It's not super expensive. You download the Covenant Eyes app on your phone. That becomes your browser. Then you have an accountability partner, and they go through and they set up parental controls on your phone, and they remove your Safari, and they remove every single app that has a browser. Facebook has a browser. Twitter has a browser. You know how you click a link and you don't really go to Safari or whatever. I know I'm talking, I know I'm talking iOS talk, but, um, but uh, Android and stuff that work the same kind of way. You remove all those kind of things. You've got to think through other stuff. You've got to think through your Instagram, right? Instagram, especially on the Explore page, especially people that just start following you that are porn accounts, soft porn or regular porn accounts. Um, you got to think through those kinds of things. What stirs up lust? Turns out there's a whole lot of porn you can get on Pinterest. You know, like is, if that's an issue, you got to remove that. You know, I know we think of Pinterest as like, you know, decorations for your house and stuff. It's just a way to pin pages. So you can pin any kind of page on there. So you got to think through it, guys. you got to know yourself. I'm not saying everybody's got to do this. I haven't done any of that on my phone because it's not a risk for me. If it was, I would do it. you got to just know what's right for you and what you've got to do. For your kids, guys, there's no reason for them to be using any other browser except an accountability browser. Like, if you allow them that access, they will. And it's heartbreaking, guys, to deal with, like, 20-something-year-old kids that 12, 15 years of constantly bathing their minds in pornography. Like, we can't keep doing this. We can't let our kids fall into that. They can use the internet, but they need to use it through a device. And so what that thing does is it reports, okay? It'll flag things, it'll report. You set it up with an accountability partner. Um, it'd be great if that accountability partner for that 
report was somebody that's really serious about it and doesn't wrestle with pornography, okay? Because that sends links. So the last thing you want to do is be like sharing links with your friend that also struggles with pornography. There's a lot of people in this church that don't. They could be your accountability partner. Um, I know of a couple guys that they sent it to a friend and they have it go to their wife or their husband. Talk about accountability, right? You might say to yourself, like, I can't live like that. You know, I'm, I work with computers all day. Um, you know, I can't be, you know, living with a phone that's got, like, three things on it. It's like Google Maps and this browser that you're talking about and stuff. I can't live that way. Look, let's look at our text. Take a look at our text. In Matthew 5, 29, it says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of the members of your body then your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, that's a pretty clear answer to that, isn't it? Right? And he's not talking literally, guys, because we all know that a one-handed person or a one-eyed person can still lust. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about literal. Unfortunately, there have been people in history that did take it literally. Um, the third century theologian, Origen, who's a little weird anyway, castrated himself. And people were, <laughs> I think Calvin was writing about it. He said, regrettably, Origen took the literal sense, you know, <laughs> like on this passage. Uh, a couple decades later, the Council of Nicaea actually had to officially like denounce the practice. We aren't really cutting body parts off. This isn't what we do. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about taking whatever action is necessary to eliminate the temptations to lust. And so it might be that you go through life with a maimed phone, okay? A very pathetic flip phone or a very pathetic, you know, I mean, you can, with parental controls, uh, your accountability partner can make your phone a dumb phone that's a smartphone. You don't have to get rid of your phone. You can still take pictures and have three other things on there. Let me know if you need to know how to maim it. I'll do it for you. Um, you, might, you might have to limit your freedoms with, uh, to have true freedom. You will have to uh, limit your temporary joys to experience eternal joys. I was talking to a guy this week, and he's like, man, I've been using Covenant Eyes, and, you know, my computer's slower now, and my phone's pathetic because I only have, like, three apps and stuff like that. And, and you know what he said after that? He goes, but it's worth it to feel free for the first time. Have you felt free? I mean, there's some people that never even felt that ever since they've had their phone that's been a problem for them. And so there's that one. Um, next one would be call out. Hebrews 4.14 says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold our confession fast. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, including sexually, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we confess, we cut off access, we call out. What's so cool here is he says that we should draw near to the throne with confidence. When can you be confident to draw near to the throne of God? When you're doing well? I think that's the way we usually think about God. Like, oh, I can feel confident when I'm doing pretty well, which is super deceptive because you're never really doing that great, you know? No, he says here, in a time of need. And he says the reason we're going to do it is to find mercy and grace to help. Guys, the time when we can be confident is when we're sinning. When we're tempted, that's when we should come. And the reason I mention this is because people that battle these kinds of habitual sin, what happens is things are going along good, they're reading their Bible, they're praying, their fellowship, and all these things are going great, fall into sin, and then they're gone from the Lord for a while. 
And maybe the idea is like, ah, he doesn't want to talk to me right now after that. Maybe, you know, he needs some time to cool down. Maybe the thought is, is that I need a little time to maybe like kind of prove myself. Like I can't really go in there with this record. I kind of got to wait a while. The problem is if you draw the curve of that, there's constantly disconnection from the Lord. No one grows away from the throne of grace, right? And so come immediately. Come immediately when you've sinned. He says, with confidence we can draw near when we're in sin. Fourth, consider yourself dead to sin. In Romans 6, Paul talks about um, how when we came to faith in Christ, we became united with him. And it's a concept that I think most Christians have no idea about this concept. But when we came to faith in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we got fused with him, we got united with him. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that that one flesh union of husbands and wives really points to our union with Christ. Crazy enough. And so we are united with him. I mean... Use your imagination to think about that. You think about lust and how it misuses the imagination. Our imaginations are a wonderful gift from God. They allow us both to think about things that don't exist yet. We can think about the the new earth to come. We can think about being with Christ. They also help us to imagine things in our minds that are real present realities that we can't see, right? Unseen things. And so redeem your imagination by imagining your union with Christ. You're united with him such that Christ's life can flow through you. Sin is not inevitable. I think with all habitual sin, we just go, you know what? It's inevitable. I'm going to do it eventually. I can minimize it. I can manage it. I can decrease it. But it's never going away. That's not the truth, guys. Take a look at Romans 6. That's what he says there. Lust likes to say to us, you're going to do this eventually. You might as well give in now. But Romans 6 says, consider yourself dead to it. Because of your union with Christ, you do not have to view pornography. You can live free from it. Sin lies and says you're still a slave. And we all know that example of the elephant, right? With the baby elephant, and they put a little stake in the ground, and they put a little chain around his leg, and he can't get away, and he pulls like that, right? And then as the elephant gets bigger and bigger, they can use the same stake and the same chain, right? Because he thinks he's still bound to it, even though he's a big elephant and could just walk away. He doesn't because he tried so many times he thinks he, thinks he can't. You guys have heard that one? I have no idea if it's true. But... Um, but sin does that to us, right? It says, no, no, you're stuck. You can't do this. You can't move forward. Paul says in Romans 6, he said, one of the key things is to consider yourself dead. One of the things is, is to realize you're not a slave anymore. You guys remember, like, um, I mean, you weren't there, but the Emancipation Proclamation, right? So there was a, <laughs> there was a, at the end of the Civil War, there was a declaration that all slaves were free. You gotta imagine, guys, in some places in the Deep South, there were masters that were like, Nope, we haven't heard about it. You're not free. I wonder how many stayed in slavery for, for days or weeks or months or maybe longer because they didn't know they were free. You're that slave if you keep believing sin's lies. If you keep believing sin's lies that you're not free. Romans 6, read it. It is your emancipation proclamation. Don't believe sin's lies. The last one is seek greater joy. Seek greater joy. The, the, the um, cutting off of pornography and lust is about seeking greater joy. Users of pornography, and you guys who do, we can know this, uh, you guys know this, they, they use it to deal with fear, with loneliness, with boredom, even with anger, and with disappointment, right? It's, it's a poly drug. It's a drug that works for all different things. It promises joy, guys, but it doesn't deliver, Sin's always like that. Sin always promises joy and doesn't deliver. Lust says, you know what? You're going to be miserable unless you give into this. Isn't that what it says? But the truth is, you're going to feel miserable the moment you give into it. And if you repent of it, you're going to feel awesome. (laughs) Who has not felt awesome when temptation came 
They fled to Christ, they prayed, they walked away, they ran from it or whatever. Who's felt bad after that? I've always felt awesome after that, haven't you? We've got to remember that. Jesus is giving greater joy. Now, guys, as I round this out, one thing I want to say to you guys is that we're here to help you. And I'm not just talking about me. Like, we as a church are here to help you. Whatever you have gotten yourself tangled up in, and it might be something worse than porn, whatever you've gotten yourself tangled up in, and there's traps everywhere, there are brothers and sisters in this church that want to help you, want to help you walk in freedom. They do. Um, there, we have nothing... We're, we're not too busy for this. I think that's one thing people say is like, oh, I've been known for this for a long time and I know everybody in church is, is just too busy. Like, we're not too busy to help people walk in freedom, are we? As a church, are you guys too busy for that? Like, what do we have that's more important to do than actually walk with people in freedom? Guys, this is about your, your spouse, whether it's now or your one in the future. This is about your kids. This is about the Great Commission. We can't move forward in the Great Commission dragging this behind us, Right? Having this thing where we're like, we're close to the Lord, and then we're gone with him for two days. And then we're close to the Lord over and over again. We can't move forward like this. We are here for you. We're here to help you. You're not alone. You need to know that you're not alone. There are people here that wrestle with it. But you also need to know that there's a lot of people that do not use it. I think that's one thing that people start to think is we say again and again, it's really common in the church, and you start to think, well, then everybody's doing it. Not everybody's doing it. I'm not doing it. There's lots of people in this church that were and now aren't. There's a lot of resources for you guys here. There's a lot of resources for you guys. Take advantage of it. Romans 6 says, sin will have no dominion over you. It's a promise. Real freedom is available. Not sin management, freedom. It's so exciting, guys, because we're called to be a church of redeemed sexuality. Like, that's a discipleship thing, right? Um, God has called us to be a lot more than non-consumers of the products of sexual exploitation, right? Because you could think, like, okay, I'm a consumer right now, and I want to be a non-consumer. That's not what God has for you. He doesn't want you to just go from being a consumer to a non-consumer. He wants you to be a combatant. We want to enlist you in this. We want to be the kind of community where people come in those doors, they're stuck in this, I pair you up with, with them, you help walk them through this. People going from being consumers to non-consumers to combatants. I mean, that's what Holly's doing in Cambodia, right? And the cool thing is, we get to be a part, we get to be an extension of what she's doing there. She's fighting sex trafficking and things like that, right? And then here, we're, so her ministry is rescuing people from that. Our ministry, guys, is mostly rescuing people out of consuming the products of what's going on in that industry. I love what Ephesians 5 says. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Do you want to be about that? You want to be a church that does that? You want to be a church that doesn't play games? You know, and when people are really um, enslaved to things, that we could be a community that would help them out of it? I want you guys to be a part of it. Lastly, I just want to talk to you about the gospel because, you know, you read the Sermon on the Mount and one thing you find is that we are all sinners. <laughs> Nobody's clean here. Nobody's got completely clean hands, clean eyes, clean heart. There's no one here that's free from sin, but equally true, there's no sin in this room that is stronger than our Savior. You, you do not have it. You might be like, oh, no, I have it. You do not have it. You do not have the sin. You do not have the habitual sin that's stronger than our Savior. If you'll bring all your sin to him, including your sexual sin, you bring all of it to him today, you know what you'll find in Christ? You'll find the kind of love that sex points to, a covenantal love. Because the cool thing about God is that he is not a consumeristic Savior. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm all in as long as you meet my needs. Like, that's not the kind of Savior we have. He has no needs. And even if he had them, we couldn't meet them, right? He isn't a consumeristic savior. He's a covenantal savior. He says this to you. I'm all in 
even when you don't meet any of my needs and even if it costs me everything. And it did cost him everything. Guys, on the cross, we see God himself bearing all the costs of giving us his eternal covenant. In Colossians, it talks about when Christ was hanging on the cross, that he became our certificate of debt. Think about all the sins we've ever committed. And I know, guys, and I'm the same way, we can, when we're tired, when we're discouraged, when we already have other problems, we start to dwell on sins from the past, and we think, oh, man, if I could have five things I wouldn't have done, I know exactly what they'd be. Guys, that record of debt, those things were put on Christ. He was our certificate of debt, and they've been taken away, nailed to the cross. Your record's been expunged. And not only has your record been expunged, but it's been replaced. And so when Christ sees, when God sees you, he sees Jesus' perfect sexual righteousness. Have you ever thought about Jesus as having perfect sexual righteousness? This is a man who lived 30-something years, right? Tempted in all ways as we are, yet never sinned, and that's the record you have. A perfect record. I think about this song like it's a, it's a U2 lyric, and I don't remember which song right now, but it, it, the line says something like, I can't even remember what you're trying to forget. And I just think of when we come again and again to repent of that, that sin from before, that sinful life, that sinful pattern of living, and we bring that up to the Lord, you know what he does? He goes, I can't remember what you're trying to forget. Maybe you should forget it too, right? We have no record of that. All we have is Christ's perfect record for you. And so trust in that, guys, and he will give you an eternal covenant with him. He will say to you, I belong to you permanently and completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen all your flaws. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.